Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. There's so much incredible work, and 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 the differentiation of the work is so amazing. So um, it's been one of the more unusual seasons I can ever remember being, you know, being watching or being a part of. This is a collect call from the Theater Podcast, bringing you exclusive behind-the-scenes access to the Theater Awards season 2019. This is Serial, part of a Broadway lover's complete breakfast. In this special five-part miniseries, we bring you stories and interviews from some of the most hard-to-access places throughout the month of May, leading up to the red carpet and press room of the Tony Awards themselves, which took place on June 9, 2019. For those who may not know, directly after the award winners stand on stage giving their acceptance speech, they're escorted into what's called the press room. This is typically a space in the same building as the awards ceremony, or as close by as possible, where the winners get a chance to have their picture taken by media outlets and give audio or video interviews. You have to be invited into this exclusive room, and space is limited. So Jillian and I are very grateful and happy that we're able to bring you these exclusive interviews. Part 3 of Serial takes us into the press room for the Drama Desk Awards, and picks up pretty quickly after Part 2 concludes. Part of the fun is that the press interviews happen as the awards ceremony is actually still taking place. The press room was down the street from the Drama Desk Awards themselves. It was a dimly lit, intimate space with yet another step and repeat set up for the photojournalists. For those of us doing audio interviews, tables normally used for fine dining were repurposed as an assembly line of sorts, giving each of us an opportunity to interview winners for one-on-one interviews as time allowed. We'll now present the interviews to you in the order in which we conducted them. We begin with Rachel Chavkin, who won Outstanding Director of a Musical for Hadestown, a category in which she also wins the Tony Award a week later. In the interview, I brought up the fact that Rachel is pregnant during this whole awards season, and she gives us more insight into who she really is as a person, exposing a side of herself that she may have previously never discussed with the media before giving us a glimpse of her next projects. You're carrying another human being with you? I am carrying another human being, yeah, for my best friends, yeah, who are visual artists. I'm having this baby with slash for them. Wow. Well, I had no idea you were doing circusy. Can we talk about that for a second, sure. or do you want to talk about the? Happy the, to talk about it. Uh, uh, I will say I think it's really important to model non-traditional families, and there are many models that have inspired me and my friends, and uh, and so yeah, I'm very happy to discuss it. So you decided to do this as Hades, as Hades Town is rising to all this critical acclaim, and you're doing these red carpets, and you're doing just show after show after award ceremony. Like, are you feeling okay? Well, I didn't make the decision in the height of the awards season, obviously. It just happened to line up with it. Um, yeah, I'm feeling fine. I mean, happily, I'm in the towards the end of my second trimester, so things aren't wildly uncomfortable yet. And my first trimester, I think I got off light for uh, what I know so many of my uh, friends and colleagues have been through so that's wonderful so can you tell us like are you already thinking ahead to the next project are you are you working on something else now oh yeah I'm gonna be developing a bunch of new things over the course of the summer so Lempica which I directed at Williamstown Mm -hmm. Theatre Festival last summer uh, is growing and changing and developing with Matt Gould and Carson Kreitzer 
Heather Christian, the composer, and I are actually working on and co-authoring a piece that I'm also directing that's an adaptation of a Mac Wellman novel called Annie Salem. Uh, so I'll be up at New York Stage and Film for that. And then my company, the team, is working on a new show that we're developing this summer. But no production till Moby Dick in the fall. For those who haven't seen Hades Town, what what how can you describe the message that you want people to walk away with after they see the show? I think, I mean, Hades Town is about many things, um, uh, but more than anything, it's about um, a faith that your lover or your fellow human is going to walk alongside you in the darkness. And so it's about the fear of feeling alone and then the fellowship of standing together uh, when you're asking a question and, and speaking truth to power. Celia Keenan-Bolger, who won Outstanding Featured Actress in a Play, a category she also took home the Tony Award for a week later, was the next one to chat with us. Did you see this coming at all? Like, the, the show just kind of came out of nowhere and it's just been breaking record after record after record and now here you are. You know, it's funny, I think now it's easy to feel like, well of course To Kill a Mockingbird is a huge hit on Broadway, but I actually think the process of making it, because it's a piece that is so beloved by so many people, that it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it was going to be this great piece of art. Because I think actually there are a number of ways we could have really screwed it up and didn't. And so in that way, I do feel like it is a sort of nice surprise that it has been not only well received critically and by my friends, but that it is <laughs> It's a piece that I think has enormous cultural relevance, which I feel on Broadway is actually not that easy to do. And so that part of it is also um, really very, very meaningful and very, very important. So playing playing literal a literal child, like playing a role that normally would be played by a child. And that is, I think, as you said, an opportunity that could have made the, sh the show go very awry. Correct. <laughs> how, did, how did you personally, like when you found out they were casting adults for this, for this role, these roles, how did you approach this? I mean, the craziest thing is that when I got the call for this job, it was, it came like this. It was basically like, look, they're doing uh, the very first reading of this play because Aaron needs to work on the script and obviously they will be casting kids in these parts, but they're worried that an eight-year-old or even a 10-year-old is gonna have a hard time cold reading an Aaron Sorkin play for the afternoon, so would you mind just coming in for the day and reading the part? And I was like, uh, yeah, I would be thrilled to come in with Aaron Sorkin and Scott Rudin and Bart Shear and like read Jean-Louise Finch, like that sounds great. But in my head, I was like, this is a part, you know, and the truth is like, I'm not sure I would have been like, yeah, you should cast adults, but I never thought it was a job I would have. So I don't know that I did anything to prepare for it except just try to show up and be present. Nick Powell was nominated for two Drama Desk Awards, Outstanding Music in a Play for the Lehman Trilogy and Outstanding Sound Design in a Play for The Ferryman. He speaks with me now as he just won the award for his work in The Ferryman. Aside from some great conversation in general, I never expected the answer he gave me when I asked him what he was working on next. First of all, I want you to tell me, if you're so kind, what sound design does for a play? Because normally I think about sound design for a musical for obvious reasons. How, how do you approach this for a play? Well, I could, uh, uh, it depends on the play, but this, this one in particular, um, we had some really um, 
different worlds to create within the same play because it, it takes place in a kind of in a real family environment in a in a farmhouse in Ireland. So there's a sort of realistic world which is to try and give the audience a sense of uh, the exterior exterior beyond the walls of the of the set. But also the play exists in a kind of mythic space too, which is uh, there's a sort of supernatural element which is uh, evoking the past and the the world of the Banshees and um, Irish mythology. Uh, so the sound design is there to really help bring both of those worlds to life. And how does one get get into sound design in the first place? Are, do you have background in like Foley artistry or, or how does that work? I'm actually a composer originally so I wrote the music for the Ferryman as well. Um, so I uh, co-founded a theatre company when I was a teenager and at college and uh, basically I was writing the music for it and the job sound designer didn't really exist in quite the same way at the time so I ended up doing that stuff as well. Well that's incredible well obviously you have done an amazing job so congratulations and, and what's next for you? Uh, well I wrote the music for a show called the Lehman Trilogy which we've just uh, has been on in the armory here but we've just opened it in the West End and then I'm doing a big outdoor festival in Austria uh, where we take over a stretch of the Danube River and put on a crazy show for 100,000 people. And is there sound design for, for the Danube River? On, on the Danube River? There is. Well, I've written music for it and there's sound design and yeah. It's <laughs> That's incredible. I absolutely love how theater and especially like the Broadway community here in New York and the off-Broadway community, but theater in general just can take over indoor space, outdoor space, and just transforms and transports people into a place that they wouldn't otherwise get to get to experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, it's also, it's interesting for people like me to move between different kind of mediums, whether it's outdoor or indoor, or whether it's a big show for 100,000 people, or if it's a small studio theater show, like all of those things are fascinating uh, areas to work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Charles G. LaPointe nominated against himself in the category of Outstanding Wig and Hair Design for both his work in Beetlejuice and The Share Show discusses yet another non-traditional career path that could allow someone to get involved in the Broadway community without being directly on stage. What I find the best about the Drama Desk is that they nominate us, the wig designers, and I feel like we're overlooked by everybody else and they've stepped up and said that, you know, you guys are worthy of at least recognition, you know, win or lose, it doesn't really matter, you just, you're, it's nice that someone says, you know, we appreciate what yeah. you do. Where do you go for your wig inspiration? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just looked at Bob Mackey. <laughs> and done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically that's it. Do, do you, when you're doing wigs, do you take it off of, uh, do you get the costume design first and then add that, or is yeah, it vice versa? When, I get the job, I, I meet with the designer, and we talk about things, and they show me sketches and whatnot. And so I riff on the sketches and their ideas. They generally do kind of a loose idea of what they want, and they, you know, I've worked with many of them over the years, 
many times, so they just trust me to do what I do based on what they're giving as a general idea. Bradley King, who won for Outstanding Lighting Design for a Musical for his work in Town, who also takes home the Tony Award in the same category, speaks to me about one of my favorite parts of the musical, the swinging lights during the performance of Wait For Me. I'm sure you've been asked about this ad nauseum, but swinging lights. Ah, okay. So the swinging lights, I can't claim 100% credit for because they were the very first visual impulse that Rachel Chavkin, our genius director, ever had. Um, and it comes from the idea of being on a highway late at night, driving home, trying to get back to your lover or your partner who you're missing really well, and seeing the... Um, the flash of the headlights across the windshield late at night. Um, and her, the, the idea for the swinging lamps was um, one of the first uh, um, impulses she had for what the show was going to look like. And then we've just refined it over and over and over again in all the various iterations. Really? Then, like yeah. it started with the lights and it's, then kind of worked its way backwards? Yeah, exactly. It was an idea that she had. She told David Newman, our choreographer, it's like, I think it's going to look like this. And I think they're going to fly in. And I think they're going to swing. And then we built around the idea. Um, and that's one of the only times I've ever done something like that. That's incredible. David Corrins, a name you may recognize as the set designer for Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, and several other of the largest productions of the last decade, speaks with me about his win this time for outstanding set design for a musical on his work in Beetlejuice, and how he took a single set and made it into four distinct houses, each with their own look, feel, and mood. That set is the same set, but it represents basically four different houses, four different transformations of the same set. How did, how did you start to imagine this process of, did you originally think of like four different sets or did you, like, um, how did it come So Alex Timbers, our director, uh, in our very first meeting six and a half years ago, said to me, um, I think that the house should be another character in the show and the Maitlands get trapped in the house and we, it'd be so amazing and delicious to watch this thing evolve over time. So we started the Maitlands, that house gets purchased by the Dietzes, it gets you know stripped of all of its like fun Victorian charm and then of course Beetlejuice comes in and he you know haunts the place and it's just like one of those rare design challenges that is super integral to the show and the narrative but also unbelievably fun and crazy. So you've you've done you've designed Hamilton, you've designed Dear Evan Hansen, you've designed Beetlejuice, you've designed some of the biggest, most iconic shows of the last several years. But they're all so so dramatically different. Like the the, the sets look nothing like each other. How do you approach your projects? How do you even get this concept in your head? I mean, I, you know, a lot of people ask me um, about the kind of varying aesthetics of the shows, and I say simply, you know, Hamilton shouldn't look like Dear Evan Hansen, and Beetlejuice shouldn't look like Hamilton. Um, and so, for me, I just try and really spend time with the text, and I think to myself, what does the show want? scenically. You know, I try to not go in there with a visual agenda. I try and literally make the thing that I think would be the best, most effective way to help tell the story, period. The legendary Bob Mackie, who has designed the actual Cher's costumes for decades, speaks to me about his win in the category of outstanding costume design for a musical for The Cher Show, who is also another person who takes home the Tony Award in the same category a week later. At the age of 80, this is Bob's first Broadway-focused award. Being on Broadway is a dream of his that's been 70 years in the making, a dream he never gave up on. Won the Drama Desk Award for... I know, you know, and that always sounded so 
very cultural, the Drama Desk Award, and I, I never thought, I never even occurred to me that I could win that. Well, you've, you're known primarily as a fashion designer. No, I'm not. No? No, I, I started out as a costume designer, and I never stopped doing that. But when I was doing these things for Cher back in the old days, a lot of the fashion people were thinking, couldn't we have some of that? You know, it's kind of how that happened. Well, then maybe that answers my question. Uh, like, you've designed some of the most iconic outfits that Cher herself has worn, and then now bringing it into the Cher show, they not only have to represent their original, uh, I, I guess, prestige, but also be able to be put on and off quickly for all of these amazing quick changes. Well, they, they're, they are amazing. I mean, some of them are literally seconds. Yeah. Yeah, and Stephanie has the worst ones into the Academy Award ones, where she goes off. And they, they set a couple lines and she walks back in, skin out change, wig different, everything's different. So did, did it present any sort of challenge for you to translate the original designs to Broadway? Yeah, we did them exactly the same. We just made the closures easy to get into and made them simpler in that respect, but sim not simpler in, in embellishment or, or, or silhouette or anything. So do you see yourself continuing down the Broadway path now? I, I, listen, I would love to. I keep saying, oh, I want to do another one. But it doesn't mean anyone will hire me. <laughs> I think, they weren't even going to hire me for this one. They, I think some of the producers thought I was really dead. Well, obviously, <laughs> you are not here. No. And I said, no, no, we're here. And it was Cher herself that says, no, he has to do it. Well, well I'm so glad she did. The costumes are beautiful. Everything you do is Thank beautiful. You. Congratulations. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, what would you see? One show playing right now? Any show in historic. Another show? Oh, I don't know. My, my, my family never went to the theater. They, they, the theater, what's that? They, didn't even, they went to the movies, maybe. How did you get involved in theater then? I was a weird child. <laughs> Just, you know, I, I told this story on, on the stage and you weren't in there. But I, I said, you know, when I was 10 years old, my Uncle Harry asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up, Bobby? And I said, I want to be a costume designer on Broadway. And, and, then, and then I said, and then I said, he just rolled his eyes and walked away. And I said, you know, 70 years later, here I am. Wow, wow. Well, fabulous. you've done an amazing job. Again, congratulations. Thank you. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get interviews with a few winners for various reasons. Stephanie J. Block and Santino Fontana had time constraints on their schedules. Ali Stroker simply couldn't come down the stairs, which speaks to the overwhelming need for everyone to take accessibility into consideration when planning events such as these. By the time we were finished with another interview, Ali had already gone back to watch the rest of the awards. We wrap up part three of this mini-series speaking with The Prom, right after they won their Drama Desk Award for Best Musical. Accepting the award and speaking to me were producers Dory Berenstein, Bill Demashke, and Jack Lane. As mentioned in part two of this miniseries, there were several shows that made it from off-off-Broadway or off-Broadway to Broadway in the same season. The Prom, however, always had their sights set on Broadway from the very beginning. When asked about this, here's what they had to say about the uncertainty of actually making it to the Great White Way. I think when you're working um, with Casey Nicola and, and Bob Martin and Chad and Matt and, and um, uh, it was we were hoping you know you never know we, we always uh, hope but I think that was what we were aiming for but I think the most important thing is we wanted to get this show on on it 
its feet and get it to as many people because we believe so deeply in the message. And if Broadway was the, the way for us to do that, that was what we wanted. Well, and it's about Broadway. It's about yeah. Broadway. It's a, it's a big Broadway musical that has a lot of heart and hope to it, but it's about Broadway stars and it's about what happens in the world of theater. And so it just felt the Broadway stage was the right home for it. Right. It, it needed the scope of the Broadway yes. stage to tell this tale. Yeah. Well, the three of you, congratulations. I love the show. One of my absolute favorites. And it has so much heart and so much love. And it's literally, I keep hearing stories, literally changing people's lives. As you all know, uh, the theater podcast was taken over by the prom for all of May. So we had all the guests. And and the feedback and the, the love and the requests for, for, like they love from all the way up to, to Caitlin down, like I won't say down, like across the board yeah. to the ensemble. Everybody loves everyone in the show. And it, it means so much to so many people. So, you know, on behalf of everyone who's listened and everyone who's written in and everyone who's requested more episodes from the prom, which we will plan on doing, uh, thank you, thank the three of you for, for putting your heart and soul into this. It's meant a lot to a lot of people. Don't stop talking about us. <laughs> thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode three of Serial part of the Broadway Lovers Complete Breakfast. Visit us online via theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, via thetheaterpodcast.com, or send us an email via feedback at thetheaterpodcast.com. And make sure to follow Parody Bill on Instagram for more amazing Playbill mashups. If you could give your younger self some advice, or younger people now who want to be lighting designers, what would you tell them? Uh, make sure you stay passionate, slow down, take it in, no one's in a rush, you're going to get there eventually. If you were to give advice to your younger self, and younger people now starting out on a similar path of maybe costume design, what would you say? Um, try to work with somebody you admire and you like their work, and watch them, and, and watch them make mistakes, because everybody makes mistakes, and watch them have triumphs, and have beautiful and you learn a lot yeah. and before you know it they're going to be giving you responsibilities and you can make your own mistakes <laughs> hey it's leslie Udom jr here on the broadway podcast network to tell you about the rise theater directory a program of maestro music rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds if you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.